Welcome to The Rock Podcast. We have the privilege tonight to hear from Pastor Bob Cole, who is a songwriter, worship leader, and personal friend of The Rock. For the next few Wednesdays, he will be sharing with us through the book of Psalms. Let's join Bob now in tonight's Wednesday night study. You know, the funnest thing about you guys is that you come hungry. (laughs) It's no, it's just God will have to feed you, but but it is uh, it's so delightful. I taught last last Saturday at a uh, men's retreat up in Fort Bragg, and I taught three uh, of the same psalms that I've taught here, but with sort of a a guy flavor to it. Fifty guys showed up. That's a that's a lot of men. You know what? Every one of them brought Bibles and notebooks. And you got to love that. You just got to love a bunch of men that come spiritually hungry. So I was grateful. Thank you guys for welcoming me and, and uh, being so kind. I know I'm not what you're used to. And uh, you have one of the, my favorite Bible teachers for a pastor. So, But I thank you for... Um, just how, how kind you've been to me, and it's, it's delightful after not having been a pastor for 15 months now, after almost 40 years. Um, it's just nice being able to teach the same people <laughs> um, a few times in a row. We're looking at Psalm 50 tonight. It's one of the opportunities that we have, and there are many in Scripture, where we get to hear God tell us what He really wants from us especially with regard to worship. And uh, it's, it's astonishing to me how, how, after how clear God has been about what it is that he wants from his people, it's amazing to me how throughout church history we've given him just about everything else except what he wants the most. And uh, it's the thing that he's given the least. And... Uh, So this is worth looking at. This is a psalm of Asaph, one of three worship leaders that David had when he was king. Asaph, Ethan, and my favorite, He-Man. You've got to love a worship leader named He-Man, especially since people think musicians are wimps anyway. It's not pronounced He-Man. It's pronounced Hey-Man. But this is Asaph, and this is an instructional psalm. And it's prophetic, meaning that Asaph was not just a worship leader, but he was also a prophet. And to prophesy means that you are speaking God's words, God's message, God's instruction. And the first few verses are, the verbs are future tense, so it it, it sounds very prophetic, but... From verse 7 through 15, which we'll spend most of our time on tonight, it is instruction to God's people. He differentiates who he's speaking to. And from verse 16 through 23, he addresses the wicked. 
There's, there's some debate as to whether he's talking about the wicked amongst his people um, or just wicked in general. Um, we're going to, I'm going to read through the whole psalm just so we take it in its context, but we will spend most of our time uh, on the instruction of verse 7 through 15. And then I'm going to read you three or four of, I think, the most powerful scriptures in other places in the Bible, too. Jesus himself speaking, to tell us what it is that God really wants from us. And uh, if we are confused, if some of us are confused on this, this hopefully that will change tonight um, so that we can be given him what it is that he wants. And I'm always surprised how church people are confused about what it is that God really wants. If you listen to televangelists, you get the idea that God's going broke. And he, and he needs your money. And you know what, folks? Anybody tries to tell you God is going to go broke, grab your wallet and run really fast in the other direction. God is not going to go broke. In the upper right-hand corner of the country where I ministered for 20 years, the saying that I heard a lot of churches from a lot of pastors was, you are saved to serve. You're saved to serve. And I just beg to differ with that. That's not the bottom line reason why you were saved. The bottom line reason you were saved is because Jesus would rather die than live without you. You were saved to be his and to walk with him in fellowship and to know him intimately and have a relationship with him and ultimately to be married to him forever for bazillions and bazillions of years. And serving him was supposed to be born out of that. And if you get it mixed up, a lot of bad stuff has happened in God's name by people who didn't know him, who were sure they were serving him, but they didn't know him. So you fly jetliners into skyscrapers, or you strap bombs onto children in marketplaces, or you get a whole bunch of crazy soldiers that are bored, and you send them down to try to liberate um, Jerusalem and and start resentment that still lasts to this day a thousand years later. So obviously knowing God is the most important thing. And that's sort of the thing. Let me read through this. I'm reading from the, ask them to print it out up there. I'm reading from the New King James. It is really similar to the NIV. There's only a couple of words that are different. And they're synonyms. So they're perfectly acceptable. Uh, but let me read this. The first six verses are context. Asaph, speaking as God's prophet, says, okay, you guys, here's who we're dealing with here and the things that he's about to say, and this is serious. So when he talks in verses 3, 4, 5, and 6, the, the verbs are future tense, and he's talking about God being the judge. So uh, there should be a... Mm, uh, at the end of that context, just so we take it seriously. And, of course, all the way from verse 6 all of the way in is all in quotations. So this is what God is saying. Um, before I start, I just want to tell you what the Bible's definition of wicked is. In New England, wicked is a, uh, an adjective that means very. So if it's cold, it's wicked cold. If you're handsome, you're wicked handsome. And uh, that really chaps my hide. 
That bothers me. Because wicked is a bad word. In, in Scripture, Old and New Testament, the wicked are those, they're not people who were raised you know, dysfunctional family and don't really know the difference between right and wrong. The wicked, by biblical definition, in Hebrew and Greek both, the wicked are those who know the difference between right and wrong and still deliberately choose to do wrong. Hopefully there is no wicked people in here. But we're going to read the passage where God addresses them because you could learn some stuff about God and the way he thinks. And uh, so... Verse 1, Psalm 50, written by Asaph, an instructional psalm. Context in the first six verses. The mighty one, God the Lord, has spoken and called the earth from the rising of the sun to its going down. Out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God will shine forth. Our God shall come and shall not keep silent. That's good news. And fire shall devour before him, and it shall be very tempestuous all around him. Sounds like the second coming, doesn't it? He shall call to the heavens from above and to the earth that he may judge his people. Gather my saints together to me. That always sounds like the rapture to me. Those who have made a covenant or a contract with me by sacrifice, let the heavens Declare his righteousness, for God himself is the judge. And there's that little ubiquitous word, selah, which nobody knows exactly what it means, but, but most scholars believe it means just stop and think about what, what I just said. <laughs> think about who we're dealing with here. Okay, here's his instruction, verses 7 through 15, to his people, and verses 16 through 23, to the wicked. Hear, O my people, verse 7, and I will speak, O Israel, I will testify against you. I am God, your God. I do not rebuke you for your sacrifices or your burnt offerings, which are continually before me. I will not take a bull from your house. The NIV is really better here where it says, I have no need of a bull from your house nor goats from your folds, because every beast of the forest is mine, and I put in parentheses, already. You're not going to give me something I don't already own, God is saying. And the cattle on a thousand hills, I know all the birds of the mountains. Underline that word know. It's a, it's a sweet word. I know all the birds of the mountains, and the wild beasts of the field are mine. I love this. This is, this is sarcasm. And if I were hungry, I would not tell you. If God was going broke, he wouldn't have preachers telling you to give him more money. Because the world is mine in all its fullness. And will I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? Verses 14 and 15 are four things that God tells us specifically in this passage that he does want from us instead of those rituals of doing the right thing for the wrong reason, which church people are famous for. The New Living Translation says, but what I want instead, and then it starts verse 14, I like that. Offer to God thanksgiving, there's thing number one. Thing number two, pay your vows to the Most High. In other words, keep your promises. 
Thing number three, call upon me in the day of trouble, and I will deliver you. And thing number four, and you shall glorify me. The NIV says honor. It, it is a synonym of the Hebrew word, but I really like the word glorify better. Um, and I'll tell you why when we look at what glorify means. But to the wicked, God says, or rebellious, some translations say rebellious. In other words, you know what's right, you know what's wrong, choose to do the wrong anyway, rebellious fits pretty good there. What right have you to recite my statutes or take my covenant in your mouth, seeing you hate my instruction and you cast my words behind you? By the way, in, that is highly sanitized in English. It's the Hebrew term for what your body does with waste products that it no longer can process. I'll just let your imaginations. Anne will never get that joke because she's so innocent. But you hate my instruction and you cast my words behind you, so to speak. When you see a thief, you consent with him and have been a partaker with adulterers. You give your mouth to evil and your tongue frames deceit. You sit and speak against your brother. You slander your own mother's son. Verb tense important here in verse 21. These things you have constantly done. And I kept silent. And so you thought that I was altogether like you. But I will rebuke you and set them in order before your eyes. Now consider this. I see great mercy in verse 22. Now consider this, you who forget God, lest I tear you in pieces and there be none to deliver. Whoever offers praise, and that is true praise, glorifies me, and to him who, the New King James says, who orders his conduct aright, meaning the fruit of repentance, when you see you've been wrong and you decide you're going to do things right, God says, I will show salvation, the salvation of God. I see great mercy there. God said, look, I'm bigger than you are. I could wipe you out if I want to. Just because I've been, I haven't nailed you so far doesn't mean I haven't noticed what you've done. God says, think about that. Think about who I am. Look at my muscles. I could squish you if I wanted to. I don't want to. I will judge one day. So make up your mind which side you're going to be on. You're going to just hit the dirt and surrender and straighten out your life. Then, you, then I'll be glad to save you. I just love the way he is. <laughs> I just love it. So what we're going to do is I ask uh, Zach to put on a slide, verses 7 through 15, and we'll... We will spend most of our time on that because that's who we are. And then after, after we especially look at verses 14 and 15, we'll spend most of our time on that. He tells us what he's not impressed with, and then he tells us what it is that he wants. We'll spend most of our time on that, and I'll read you um, some other verses. I'll give you the reference so you can look them up later and check me out. Um, I find, found myself at one point in my Christian life realizing that everything that I did for God didn't come, my understanding what he wanted from me didn't come from God, it came from people. 
It came from the denomination I was raised in. They had a whole list of, of the, you know, the filthy five and the, you know, the 20 things you don't, I will not drink or cuss or chew or run around with girls that do, you know, and you carry this, <laughs> you carry this, you know, this little thing in your wallet to just, here's all the things we don't do. And I remember calling, witnessing to somebody one time about that, and they said, well, what do you do? I didn't have an answer. We went to church. It's, it's another thing. When I fell in love with the Lord, and I stopped being a good little church boy, and I just became crazy in love with Jesus, 1970, at Calvary Chapel. Anne was, she was in the building probably when I gave my life to the Lord. We didn't know each other then. All of a sudden, I wanted to know more than anything else. I didn't want to know what Pastor Chuck thought. I didn't want to, what radio evangelists thought. I wanted to know what God wanted from me. And uh, I was quite surprised. It was way different than I thought. In fact, it was way different than things I had been giving him, things that I had done for him. And then I ignored the things that he really wanted. And the, the astonishing thing about it, this is God. This is God who is holding together the subatomic particles in the universe as we speak. The reason why protons and neutrons, and the reason why the atom doesn't just fly off into space. Colossians says that it's Jesus that's holding it together. That God, what he does want from us is so simple, and it's so real, and it doesn't look anything like church most of the time. It looks more like a good marriage or a good relationship between parents and their children. It's intimate. It's fellowship. That's what he wants. That's what we were saved for. So here, oh, my people, those of you who have ever had children or have children now uh, that are still babies, you know there's a vast difference between hearing and listening. <laughs> I hear your voice. I am just not paying attention. The word listen means to pay attention, and that's the Hebrew word here. So he's saying, listen up. Oh, my people, uses the possessive pronoun. You're mine. We had a deal. And I will speak, and I will testify against you. I'm not going to rebuke you for your sacrifices or your burnt offerings, which are continually before me. I used to think that was sarcasm, like sacrifices, sacrifices, just all the time, sacrifices. But see, he told them. They were just doing what he told them. The problem with religious people is if you do something long enough, especially if you go to another generation, people don't even ask, why are we doing this? They just do it. And so what winds up happening is you get a couple of generations down, and people, just, people will fight. They'll beat you up over doing the little rituals, and they don't even know why we're doing this. We're just doing it because dad did it and granddad did it. And, and, uh, and that's, that's what God is addressing here. He said, yeah, you're doing the sacrifice thing, but you're doing it for the wrong reason. What I see now when, when I read this, your burnt offerings, your sacrifices, which are continually before me, especially if you look at the tenor of this whole thing, if you all go all the way down to the end and you said, look, we, 
we can fix this. This can be changed. We could be right. Here's, here's, here's what I want from you first. Um, I see when he says that your sacrifices, your burnt offerings are continually before me, I see God saying, look, I see every gift that you give me. Every one. I'm not ignoring any. Though being a worship leader, teaching conferences for worship leaders, I, this whole passage translates very, very well for worship leaders because it's really, it's, musicians have a hard time. If you're trained in performance, you forget who the audience is. You forget that the audience is God. And the people are the singers, and you're the backup band. And so I, I've all the time talking with worship leaders who play great music. I'm grateful for it. I love music in this church. But I've talked to guys who, it's all about the music, and they, they don't worship themselves. And I thought, you realize that for those five lovely, beautiful songs, oh, please silence all cell phones. You realize that God just got ripped off because he wanted to hear what you had to say to him. So I think God is saying, look, I see every gift. And later he's going to say, by the way, I don't need any bulls. <laughs> don't need your money. I don't need your licks. I didn't save you because you're the best guitar player that I didn't have. Um, didn't save you because you had a bunch of money that I needed. Important to know that. He said, I saved you because I loved you, and you're going to hell. I couldn't stand that. I, that drove me crazy. I wanted you with me. I still want you with me forever. we got to fix this whole sin thing. Because you can't be with me forever if you're filled with sin. So I love that uh, Jesus love you so much he would rather die than live without you. That is the gospel, folks. That's God's motivation. So he says, I, the, the King James says, I will not take a bull from your house, the um, no goats out of your folds. As I said, the NIV says, I have no need. And, and the, the NIV is, is actually closer to the flavor of the Hebrew in these next few verses because God is saying, just think, think, think about it. You aren't giving me something that I don't already own. So let's just, the whole sacrificing the bull thing, you're missing the point. The point of sacrifice, it's bloody. It was supposed to be. It was, it was personally costly. It was supposed to show us the, the nature of sin and the costliness, personally, of sin. But it was also painting a picture when God was going to give the ultimate sacrifice to pay for all of our sins. And so, you know, it's that one-degree compass error thing. I'm a sailor, and I calced it out one time with one of the guys in my church who's an astronomer. And we calced out that you've ha if you had a one-degree compass error on that whole compass card of 360 degrees, if you had a one-degree compass error... If you follow that one-degree compass there far enough, you can be about 1,100 miles off course by the time you get just past the Hawaiian Islands. One-degree compass there doesn't seem like a very big deal. Doing what you're doing for God, but not doing what it is that he wants, doesn't seem like a very big deal, except that God gets ripped off, which is sad. 
but you go far enough with it and you can just be a thousand miles off course. Been there, done that. I am so grateful that he rescued me from that. What a waste of energy. What a waste of time. What a waste of everybody's time. So I don't need any more bulls. Got lots of bulls. Every beast in the forest is mine already. We're, so we're not giving God because he, he needs anything. Giving to God is a privilege that we have. It means something to him. I do find it interesting, and I'm not going to preach on tithing, but I do find it really interesting, the one story in the gospel where Jesus went in the temple and he stood off to the side and he just watched. Every, he uses a very strong, uh, John uses a very strong word in that he says he watched closely what everybody was giving. That, that's a kind of a thing. And, that, and it wasn't about amount at all. It wasn't about that. It was about how costly is it? Is, is the, am I a high enough priority in your life that you're willing to sacrifice for me? And that works for time and talent and all kinds of other things. Um, I know all the birds in the mountains. I just, I'm sorry, I'm a word guy. I looked this word no up just to be sure, and it was this Hebrew word. It made all the young adults laugh last time I said it. Must have been a funny word, I guess. The word is yada, Y-A-D-H-A, I know. It's the word for intimate knowledge. God says, you know, all those birds you see flying around, you barely notice them. They're my friends. I know them intimately. See, that's, not, that's just not a casual thing to say. Didn't Jesus say the same thing? Didn't he say, not a sparrow falls but without your father's knowledge and leave or permission. And you're val more valuable than many sparrows. What I see in that is that God is paying really close attention, much more than we think. And he's very possessive about all of his creation. He's, he's attached to it, even if we're not. I love that. The wild beasts of the field are mine. The Amplified Bible um, fattens up the, the phrase, my, the words mine, and says they're mine and they're with me in my mind. Bad English, perfect Hebrew. Sorry, I popped. They're with me in my mind constantly. And then verse 12, it's funny to me. If I was hungry... I wouldn't tell you. <laughs> Anybody who says God does not have a sense of humor has not really carefully read their Bible. <laughs> Think, folks, he's saying, if I was hungry and I really needed some of your, this doesn't even make sense. I told the men's retreat last Saturday the, the, the absurdity of self-protection the absurdity of thinking, I have to fix my problems. It's a guy thing. Some guys are raised with that. This is your job. Your job is to fix things. And so the whole idea of surrendering to God and letting God be God, like Pastor Don talked about, you know, when we're totally under control and we've got enough money to solve our own problems, we don't need God. Well, we think we don't need God. <laughs> we still need him. He's, like I said, he's holding the, 
subatomic particles in our bodies together. Where was I going with that? Oh, I said, guys, if God can't fix it, how do you think you're going to fix it? If it's all about you got to be responsibility and you got to take this on your own shoulders and so you can't just, you know, just wimp out and, and, and ask God for help, that's crazy. The smartest thing you can do is surrender to a greater power and involve a greater power. The stupidest thing you could do is to try to fix something with the mindset, well, I can't give it to God because he can't handle it. That's crazy. If he can't handle it, you can't handle it. So, but instead, you're doing the wrong, you're doing the right thing, you're just doing it for the wrong reason. So instead of doing that, here's what I want from you. Four things. I used to think there was only three things, but I saw the, once I looked up what the word glorify meant down in uh, verse 15, I realized, no, there's a, there, there's a sequence and a cycle of things here that God is interested in, and it's bigger than us. Israel, remember, was to be a living demonstration in the world. God said, I picked you. I didn't pick you because you're the nicest people. To be honest with you, you're the hardest people to work with I've ever worked with. But I'm going to, I want the world to see what it's like to have me for their God. So I pick you. So we'll do that. And I'm going to be the government. And the world will see what it's like to trust God. God always comes out shining, uh, smelling like a rose in that kind of a thing. People, we muddy the water, don't we? Here's the four, the, uh, four things, and we'll look at each one of them. Offer thanksgiving to God. The NIV says, I believe, sacrifice thank offerings. That's a little bit elaborate from the Hebrew. The, 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 the Hebrew word simply means, you know, you're, doing, you're going through these ritualistic motions, which, by the way, you've totally forgotten what they were all about and what they mean. What I want you to do is, is simply always be thankful. It's a, it's a continuous action verb. Offer thanksgiving to God. Now, inquiring minds want to know, why? I know why I like to be thanked. I like to be thanked because it strokes my flesh. It gives me attention. But see, God is absolutely 100% pure love. He doesn't have those ego issues that, that I do. So why would God care whether we were thankful? Again, if he's pure love, and it's all about you uh, and him being like this, and it's all about you knowing that you're loved by him and living like you're loved by him, then uh, you filter the why through those things. And I wrote three things down. Humility, intimacy, and perspective, I think, are reasons why God wants us to be thankful to him. I've been practicing this for a bunch of reasons, especially for the perspective thing. Because you can look at your life two different ways and see a completely different life. If you look at your life and you see all the stuff you don't have, nobody loves me. Everybody else is married. Why wasn't I tall and handsome? 
That's, those are just the things that I whine about, but perhaps, <laughs> perhaps you don't. You can look at your life one way and feel absolutely ripped off. And you know what? The devil will remind you. He'll, he'll remind you of stuff you lost and girls that dumped you and stuff like that that you totally forgot about. Because he really works with this whole, oh, poor you, you are so ripped off. He loves that. That was part of the original lie to the first two humans. By the way, God's original idea was to hang out in a garden with a couple of naked vegetarians. So <laughs> that, that was his original idea. Check me out on that. Humility. Simply, when I thank God, it means I recognize that I didn't do it. In fact, if you're smart, you recognize you couldn't have done it. One of the things Pastor Don said on Sunday, that was just great. Boy, he reminds me of Gail Irwin. He has that same kind of sense of humor. But Pastor Don said, he quoted the scripture where it said, it's God that gives you the power to create wealth. So, you're, so you, you have a great business. You know what? You wouldn't be breathing. Your brain wouldn't function properly except for God. So ultimately, it isn't you that did it. It's him. So humility is a good thing, not a bad thing. If God just wanted to, us to knuckle under and say, okay, you win, you're bigger than I am, if that's what it was all about, um, we would deserve it because he is God and he is holy and he is in charge of everything. But humility and God's economy is the first step to blessing. And, less, and pride short, completely short-circuits that. So being thankful, a simple thing like always being thankful for what God's done, it, it, it does foster humility. It also fosters intimacy. I think it's one, and I don't want to get off on a, I love the whole subject of manna and what that was all about and why it rotted if you tried to save it except on the day God said it wouldn't rot. But a lot of what um, the manna thing was all about was intimacy. It was about, they had no control. They couldn't make it happen. They just had to believe what God said would happen every single day twice as much so they didn't have to work on Shabbat, which was very thoughtful of him, so that they could take a day to just kick back and rest and enjoy God, and they didn't even have to go out and gather the manna. But that was about intimacy. I heard a wonderful series that Alistair Begg taught at a pastor's conference, and I'm so glad somebody that people listen to, like him, said this to about 1,500 pastors. And the, the title of the series, it's on his website, if you'd like to check it out, is The Strength of Weakness. And in that, he talks about God's goal is that we be dependent upon him. It's exactly the opposite of the American way. But God's goal for his people is that we would be dependent upon him. And this quote stuck out of my mind. He said, if dependency is the goal, then weakness is actually an advantage. When I'm strong and I can do it, then that sets in motion a whole bunch of bad things. One is that when, an, I, when 
good things happened, I think I did it. So just simply being thankful for what God's done fosters intimacy with him, and it completes that whole circle. God gives to us because he loves us. No other reason. There's no, the person with the best resume in this room isn't going to impress God. <laughs> he loves us despite our resume. And he gives to us because he loves us more than we possibly can realize. When I thank him for that, in God's mind, I'm saying, I see that you did this because you love me. And God goes, and? And I guess, wow, I guess I'm loved. And God goes, there you go. Work with that. Live your life that way. You have a God that loves you, that takes care of you. And that's what thankfulness does. And then perspective, which I cheated, and I, I did that one first. Um, it changes our perspective. When I'm thankful for what I have instead of being bummed out for what I don't have, my life looks different. Where I look at it one way, you know, what I don't have, I feel ripped off at how I look at what he's done for me on a constant basis. I just feel spoiled, rotten. I feel lavished. I can barely contain myself. I'll tell you something. My food tastes better. <laughs> when I'm thankful for it. And I just, a year ago, became vegan for my health. Boy, was that a paradigm shift. And I only eat twice a day. But I'll tell you something. When I thank God for those yummy beans and rice and tofu, um, <laughs> my, my, my food tastes better. I recommend a book if you haven't read it. It's called 1,000 Gifts by Ann Voskamp. Maybe one of the best books I've read in 15 years. And it was all about a woman who had been greatly abused, had great tragedy in her life, and how God completely changed her way of looking at her life. And it all started out by a friend said, I want you every day to write down something that you're thankful for that you see. And, 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 and do a thou make it a thousand, okay? Look at it as a gift from God. Here's a thousand things that God's given you every day. And it totally changed her life, changed my life. Before she ever wrote that book, God began working on me in that same way. and said, you know what? I'm, you're way richer than you think. I, you, I, there are love notes pinned all over your life, Bob. You just can't see them. I want you to see them. That's what I pray for the people I love more than anything else. I just I know you love them just as much as you love me. Lord... I know you've pinned love notes all around their day. Please help them to see them. And one of the ways we see them is when we're thankful. Thing number two, make good or pay your vows to the Most High. That's a relationship thing again. There's, there's really no intimacy and no relationship if you can't trust that this person's going to keep their promises. So that's a just basic relationship 101. God says, look, when you promise me stuff, I know. I know when you're not going to keep the promise. It's not so that I'll know. I know the end from the beginning. But I want you to be the kind of person 
that just, I want us to have the kind of relationship when you promise me something, you do it. And if you're not going to do it, don't promise me. Does that seem outlandish? Ask any wife. <laughs> ask any girlfriend. Ask any fiance. No, that is not outlandish. That's like a bottom line requirement if we're going to have a relationship. I saw something else in this. Why would God want me to keep my promises? Have you noticed that people who always exaggerate think that everybody always exaggerates? Have you noticed people that are suspicious think everybody's suspicious? People who lie think everybody's a liar. You can't trust what anybody says. Why do they think that way? Sometimes it's because they're liars. I think, and you can take this or leave it, I think one of the reasons God wants us to keep our promises is it helps us to better understand what a promise keeper is. And nobody's a better promise keeper than God. And we're all going to, we all get lied to, folks. Smutty face is always telling his little lies in the promises of God. I used to think the promises of God for, for only for wonderful people, they didn't apply to me because I'm such a loser that God's promises don't apply to me. Despite the fact that they are, there are all kinds of unconditional promises that God has said, I'm making this promise to anybody who turns in my direction. So it helps me to believe that God's going to keep his promises when I keep my promises. Now, is God only going to keep his promises if I keep my promises? Sometimes, because there are some conditional promises. But you know what? The good news is God's going to go right on being who he is whether you believe it or not, whether you keep your promises. Paul wrote to Timothy, even if we're faithless, he remains faithful because he can't disown himself. He's not going to stop being who he is just because we don't trust him. The third thing, call upon me. I write the word first in there because <laughs> the, I am, I'm hyper-analytical and I just... I, I have this male gene that just loves fixing things. Usually I make them worse when I try to fix them. But I had this thing that God was your last-ditch effort. If you tried everything else, then call on God. And I had a bunch of men in my church out in the state whose name will not be mentioned, in case they're listening. bunch of men felt like it was wimpy to call on God in the day of trouble. Your first responsibility was fix it yourself. And despite the disaster that comes when you believe that over a long period of time, it was hard for them to just ask for help. In fact, when people would come to our prayer meetings that we had once a week, I mean once a month at church, and folks would show up, there were so many timid souls that thought, I can't bother God with this. God has so many important things to do, and, uh, and they would keep silent. But God impressed on me every single time we had a prayer meeting to remind people that they have been invited by God himself to call upon him in the day of trouble. Do you ever have this thought that you, I can't bug God with this? Take a deep whiff. <laughs> See if you smell brimstone. Because that thought came straight from the pit. This is not the only place where God has begged us.
to call upon him. Two weeks from tonight, I'm teaching Psalm 145, one of my favorite scriptures that says this very same thing. It says in the flip side of the coin, it says the Lord is near to all who call upon him in truth. As long as you're not playing games, you call on him, he's right there. So God says, call on me in the day of trouble. And I wrote in parentheses, and then do whatever he tells you to do. <laughs> you don't just sit back in your barco lander and say, I'm big trouble, God. Fetch me a deliverance, please. You know, like he's our butler or something. When I call on him in trouble, I'm also saying, is there anything you would like me to do? <laughs> and sometimes he says, no, chill, Bob, I've got this one. And sometimes he tells me, bail like crazy. You know, sometimes he tells me the thing I don't want to do, but the Lord is inviting us to call upon him. He's just saying to his people, look, call on me. I'm going to tell one of my favorite stories. I'll try to do it and not cry. In my 40s, living 1,200 miles away from my dad, who is my best friend, my dad lived in, here in Santa Rosa for almost 45 years, my dad knows, well, he's in heaven now, so now he knows everything. But <laughs> when he was alive, he knew just about everything there was to know about cars. Right, Lynette? <laughs> wasn't he a great man? He was like your dad, wasn't he? Yeah, he was everybody's dad that knew him. But I would call him when I had a car problem. 1,200 miles. I had guys in my church who were master mechanics up there in Washington. But I would call my dad. And he would say, are you on the remote phone? I said, yeah. And he goes, well, go out to the garage, start the car, open the hood. He said, now hold the phone down next to those four pipes that are coming out because he knows how stupid I am about cars. Or, you know, wiggle that little lever on the side of the carburetor. And, and you know what? And he would tell me what's wrong every single time. But you know why I called him instead of calling the guy a block away who owned a gas station? Because of something my mom said one time. She said, she said, Bob, when you do that, every time you do that, your dad just struts around here like he's king of the world. It makes his day. And she, here's the phrase she said that made me cry. She said, because he loves being your dad. That's the best thing in his life is being your dad. Now, disclaimer, maybe you had a father that was exactly the opposite of that. Maybe your father couldn't be bothered. Maybe he felt, may, maybe he made you feel like you were a pest. A lot of fathers are like that. They're either completely disengaged or they're hostile toward you needing them. Guess what? You have a new father now. Amen. And your heavenly father loves being your dad. He's saying, call on me. I love it when you call on me. I didn't cry. That's pretty cool. Did you? Good for you. Man after my own heart. This just hit me between the eyes one time when I was reading in the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus said, your heavenly Father knows what you need even before you ask him. And what did he say next? He said, so ask. And you want to go, excuse me. If he already knows, before I ask, 
What's the point in asking? Ah, oops, I dropped my bookmark. Delete that from the tape. <laughs> Guess why he wants you to ask even though he already knows? He loves being your dad. For some of you, that's going to be a hard one because you don't have an earthly role model to follow. Just take God at his word because all over Scripture, Old and New Testament, God says this same thing, call on me. And then he offers a promise here in verse 15. He says, uh, and I will deliver you. I will. It might be different than what you expect. It might involve running for your life. It might involve paddling. It might involve, you know, it might involve some work on your part, but I will deliver you. You call on me, call on me first. And then the fourth thing, I think I can do this. I might go a little bit over tonight, but I was short on the worship, so, so fire me. <laughs> and you shall glorify me. Once again, the NIV says honor, nothing wrong with that word. But I'll show you why the New King James, why the word glorify, I love the word glorify. Because in Hebrew, the word kabed, K-A-V-E-D-H, kabed. And in Greek, the word doxazo, D-O-X-A-D-O, doxazo, yeah, doxazo. There's no Z in there, it just sounds like it. They both mean the same thing. They mean to provide the means for God to be seen for who he really is. What Karl Barth, the theologian, called God unedited, God unfiltered. To glorify God means you shine the spotlight on God and you go, there he is. In all of his glory, unfiltered through my unbelief, un unedited by my poor theology and my you know, dysfunctional family. God seen for who he really is. And God's saying, Here's, that's what I want from you. And, and speaking to Israel, that's why they were even existed. God says, I want everybody to see what a bunch of cantankerous people, what their lives would be like when they have me for their God. Yeah, you're going to be terrible at it. Don't worry, I'll be really good at it. And then the world will know. Others will see God's activity. And you'll glorify me. You will remove the filters from people's eyes when you call on me. Regularly, constantly, first. Not after you've tried everything else and, okay, the last ditch effort, let's call on God. You know how it is. But it's like... Somebody says, well, all we can do is pray. And somebody says, oh, no, has it come to that? Oh, no. No, 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 no. Talk to him first. might blow your mind how eager he is to intervene. And then what happens is people watch. See, if, you, if you're answering all your own prayers, everybody gets ripped off even if you did the very same thing God was going to do. See, this is the game I played for a while. I was really good at answering my own prayers. And then I would realize, well, you know, God was going to do it anyway. What's the big deal? And God would say, yeah, but you didn't let me do it. You didn't see me do it, and nobody saw me do it, so 
Everybody knows you're a good prayer answerer, but they don't know what I can do. And that's not good enough for them. Okay, I'm going to take 10 more minutes, 15 more minutes, okay? I'm going to do it anyway. <laughs> Three scriptures. Please write the reference down. I was going to have it printed up there, and I didn't. I, didn't, I just thought it would be simpler to give you the reference. I'll read the scriptures to you, and you can look me up. Look them up and check me out. John 4.23, Jesus speaking. Revelation 2, 2 through 5. Revelation 2, 2 through 5, Jesus again speaking. And we'll start with Isaiah 29, verse 13. Sounds an awful lot like what God says through the prophet Asaph in Psalm 50. Isaiah 29, verse 13 this is not God thundering. This is not God ticked off. This is God with his feelings hurt. Listen to what he says. He says, the Lord says, these people come near to me with their mouth and they honor me with their lips. But their hearts are far from me. And their worship of me is empty. It's based on merely human rules that they have been taught. And the Amplified fattens that word taught because it's a specific Hebrew word. It's, in fact, it's a great, it's in a lot of wonderful scriptures. This is what the word taught by, taught by humans. It means to learn by repetition whether or not you understand the meaning. Isn't that a picture of a lot of people's worship? They just keep doing it, they keep doing it, they keep doing it. They keep doing it, and after a while, you're on automatic pilot, and you have, don't even have to know what it means. You're not even thinking. And God said, you know, that hurts my feelings. If you're going to worship me, I want you to at least mean it. I want, I want your heart to be engaged. Why would that matter? Well, because intimacy is what he wants with you. I, I find that so hard to believe for me. Why would he care? But see, that's, that's our God. That's what he's like. And then John 4.23, our Lord Jesus, the expert on what God wants, talking to the woman at the well, just as she was ready to be evasive by having a theological argument about where was the proper place to worship God. Jesus said this, True worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, because the Father is earnestly, in parentheses, earnestly seeking such to worship him. And the verb seeking is present active, indic present indicative active in Greek, which means at any given point, any moment in time, this is what God is earnestly doing, looking for those who worship him in spirit and truth. Now, I have to say, that's going to look different from the outside with different people because we are different. On the inside, it's going to be exactly the same. And it all hinges on the word Jesus used for worship. Unique word, proskuneo is the word, P-R-O-S-K-U-N-E-O. The root verb is the word kuneo, which means to kiss. And proskuneo means to give a kiss. It's a word of intimacy. Charles Spurgeon, 
just had the perfect example. He said, in fact, I looked it up in one of my Hebrew dictionaries, and it was the Hebrew word for a dog licking his master's hand. Your dog just walks up, and he just can't stand it because you're just such a fabulous example of humanity, and he just loves you so much, and he licks your hand. Jesus said, that's what Father is constantly looking for, somebody to give him a kiss with all of their heart. In spirit and in truth, there's, I've heard lots of sermons on it, but essentially it simply means real. Just give him a kiss. And you know what? You don't even have to be very good at it. You don't have to be a good singer. I think sometimes music can get in the way of that, although it's not supposed to. I think is why it was invented, was to enhance that aspect of worship. But this is Jesus saying, this is what God really is looking for constantly. Isn't that a lot like what Asaph said in Psalm 50? And then Revelation 2, this is a gulper. Revelation 2, 2 through 5. I know your deeds. I know your hard work and your perseverance. I know that you can't tolerate wicked people that you've tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and you've found them false. You've persevered. You've endured hardships for my name and have not grown where. And you think, wow, I want to go to that church. Listen to what he says. Yet I hold this against you. Come on. After all that, all those great things they're doing, you got something against them? It's surprising. He said, here's what I hold against you. You've forsaken the love that you had at first. You know when you were just crazy in love with me? I liked that. That's what I want with you. And then verse 5, he says, Remember how far you've fallen. Repent and do the things you used to do. You did it first. Return to your first love. And then parenthetically, there's an or else. If you rest. I mean, it's not like he's going to kill you, but he just said, you know, I'm going to take the candlestick that represents your church. I'm just going to set it off to the side. I'm not going to consider that you're really part of the church that fellowships with me. Because it doesn't matter what it is that you're doing if you're not loving me. How are you doing? That's what your heavenly Father wants. All of the forces of heaven are at your disposal when you set your heart to love him in that regard. To give him what it is that he really wants. Boy, I could, you know what? I, it would be real easy to go another hour. No. <laughs> Important stuff, though, isn't it? You know what? I have taught this, like I said, at worship leaders' conferences. I've taught it at pastors' conferences before. And I think the people that have the most trouble holding this in the front of their minds are professionals because we've got stuff to do. We've devoted ourselves to serving God, and, and I tell you, I told this to the men at the men's retreat when I pastored a big church, about 1,000 people, and I was building a house. What was I thinking? Doing both at the same time. I had to take the long way to church because as soon as I got to church, there would be a whole list of problems for me to solve. And I had to take the long way home because when I got home, there'd be another whole list of problems to solve. And I had to take the long way both ways just to have time with Jesus. 
I'm glad it mattered to me because it matters to him. Now, the wonderful thing on this side of the cross, Asaph had it a little bit different on that side of the cross, but on this side of the cross, you can be with Jesus all day. You can be all kissy-faced with him. You can have great fellowship with him, whatever it is that you're doing. That's what he wants. That's what he wants from you. That's what he wants from me. I went through horrible withdrawals when I stopped being a pastor after being a pastor for 39 years. And for the last 15 months, I just felt useless. And some of my good friends would say, look, that's not your number one calling. Your number one calling is to be with Jesus and walk with him, fellowship with him. Pour your whole self into that. And don't worry, God has stuff for you to do. Give your whole self to that. That's first place. Let's close in prayer. You knew, Lord, we were going to need to hear this. You know, some of us were going to need to hear it more than others. I still feel like I'm pestering you when I'm always calling on you. That's so silly. I have been invited. Help us, Lord, to be people that... uh, are more thankful than we are because we do have love notes from you pasted all over our lives all day. Help us to see them, Lord. And then help us to worship you, to give you a kiss, and all that that may mean from our hearts when we say we're worshiping you. Forgive us, Lord, for the how distractible we are from that. Bless these dear ones, Lord. I just pray that this, they would find you as you are eager to be close to them throughout their days. Help us to see our life properly and not just focus on all the stuff we don't have. Thank you for the stuff we do have. We are rich people. We have the best friend anybody could ever have. We have the best dad, who also is the one that invented the best mother heart. It's all you. We are so wealthy. Let us live in this dark world where people don't even know there is such a thing, who have the completely wrong idea about what Christianity is about. Let us live in such a way that removes the filters and the editing so that people can see what a great father you are, what a mighty God you are, how tender-hearted you are, how forgiving you are, how powerful you are, that they could see that simply watching us live with you in our daily lives. And we're going to need to remember this tomorrow so because we leak. So please help us, Lord. Remind us. Thank you that we've got these scriptures. We can open and look in black and white at your words, what you say you really want from us. We pray this in Jesus' name who bought us the right to walk right into your presence, crawl up into your lap and call you daddy. In his name we pray. Amen. You have been listening to The Rock Podcast. Our regular services are held on Wednesday nights at 6.30 and Sunday mornings at 8.30 and 10.30 a.m. in Santa Rosa, California. If you would like to learn more, please visit our website at calvertherock.org.